the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions just because we want to help you understand what the Bible says so that you can get the answers to the questions that you've been dealing with. 340-9585 is our primary number for your calls. 340-9585. You can also call us toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. Or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you are driving in your car, I remind you this every day. The safest way to call is by using the free KSLR mobile app. All you have to do is hit the Call Now button on your screen, and you'll be connected directly to the studio. And then you can use the hands-free feature, and you will be safe, which is what we all want. One more time, 340-9585. Because it's Tuesday, we don't have anything going on uh, to share with you. So we'll just get right to questions. Oh, one thing I can say, ladies, and Paul will, will reinforce this on Thursday. Uh, it is, um, we're just a little over a week away from our women's retreat, March 8th through 10th. We'd love to have you. Uh, there's going to be close to 300 women who are going to be there, uh, and you will be blessed, I promise you. Uh, it's at Camp Buckner. It's uh, less than a two-hour drive from here. Uh, we We tried this campsite the first time last year and loved it. So we're looking forward to it again. Ladies, we'd love to have you go. You can call the church office at 658-8337, or you can go to calvarysa.com and uh, register online. We would love to have you join us. Here's our first question. It is an anonymous one. Pastor Ron, why is it so bad to believe that God will save everyone? I would be happy if I get to heaven and find out even unbelievers are there. God's love and grace could do that, right? Well, God's love and grace could do it, but God's justice and his holiness, Anonymous, could not do it. Now, see, this is the thing that we've got to do. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. We've got to get beyond childish emotions. God loves the world. It breaks his heart when anybody rejects Jesus Christ because that condemns them to an eternity in hell. It breaks God's heart, but he honors their choice. Who are we to try to impose our will on that? If God honors their choice, why shouldn't we? Now, I don't want anybody to die. Neither does God. Peter writes that God is patient, unwilling that any should perish. But it would be even worse were God to force people to live in heaven. Imagine this for a moment, Anonymous. What if... You had a good friend or a family member who wanted nothing to do with God. I don't want anything to do with Christians. I don't ever want to be with them. And then suddenly they get to heaven and find out we tricked them. Well, God was just kidding. It's really important that we understand this. God's holiness, his justice, 
is his overarching attribute. More so than love, more so than grace, more so than patience. God's holiness. And that wonderful scene around the throne of God in Isaiah chapter 6, the angels were crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Not lenient is the Lord God Almighty. Not nice is the Lord God Almighty. Not loving is the Lord God Almighty. But holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And holiness demands justice. Now, Jesus, as you know, I hope, Anonymous, he provided the justice. He took the punishment our sins deserved. He took the beating. They ripped his body open. He died so that we could live. And he offers that to everyone. But he doesn't force him to choose it. And what we would find, and this is the reason it's so bad to believe that God will save everyone, is because it means that no one is saved. It literally means that there is no God. The God that we know is revealed to us is not really God at all. And I don't know why people don't get this. Again, I understand the sappy emotions. I really do. I understand the heartache of looking at somebody, especially somebody that you know and love, a family member that you've been praying for for years and years. But the truth is, we don't need to pray for people if everybody's going to get to heaven. So what we've got to understand is that judgment is part of God's justice and holiness virtue that has to be exercised. So that's why it's so bad to believe that God will save everyone. And if you got to heaven and found out that even unbelievers are there, people that didn't want to be there, didn't want anything to do with God, Anonymous, then you wouldn't be in heaven. So let's don't diminish who God is by forgetting about holiness. This is something that we deal with uh, as pastors a lot. Um, people get saved and they realize, well, wait a minute, if, if I've, now I'm going to heaven and you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven, that means my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa, brothers and sisters, they're not going to go to heaven because they died and they weren't believers. Well, they had the opportunity. And you can read the story in Luke chapter 16 about Lazarus and the rich man, a story, not a parable, it's a story. And here's what their loved ones that didn't make it to heaven would say. It's real. Remember the rich man? Go tell my brothers. Problem is, it's just more comforting to feel like everybody gets there. And it's really, really not. It's really, really not even a possibility. So Anonymous and for others who have sent in similar questions, and I know we'll be getting more. It's just this universalism is a bad penny that keeps turning up and never goes away. It simply doesn't strike a chord with what we're revealed about God in Scripture. Here is a question from Sandy. What is the proper Christian position on gun control now that it's such a big issue? Uh, Sandy, there is no proper Christian position. This is a gray area. I've been teaching for the last three weeks. I got one more sort of not as hard hitting as, as the last three, but one more this coming Sunday uh, dealing with these disputable areas. There, there's no position on gun control in, in the Bible. God doesn't approve of guns, nor does he uh, say that guns aren't permitted and Christians shouldn't use them. So there's no proper position. And here's one of the things, Sandy, that I think we can all, I hope, we can all agree on. That we don't have to form positions on these issues just because they're big in the news now. Because people on your Facebook feeds are arguing about them. Christians sound silly. Well, you know, told Peter to get a sword, and Peter got a sword, so that means that we can have guns. That's silliness. That's not even good or honest scholarship. On the other hand, to say that Jesus wouldn't have a gun, or Jesus is a pacifist, 
Well, that's somebody who hasn't read Revelation. You see, we've got to be better than this. So have your position. Whatever it is, it's a position that you can sort of pray through and deal with relative to your own conscience. But in Romans chapter 14, God says, whatever you believe in these areas, keep it to yourself between you and God. We don't need to debate. So there is no proper Christian position. There will never be a proper Christian position. Our time, our energy, even our voices ought to be reserved for telling people about the one message that they really, really need to hear. And it has nothing to do with gun control, with sin control. And only Jesus can help you do that. So, Sandy, I hope that, uh, probably not very satisfying to you, but um, hope that makes sense at least. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Richard. Uh, he says, good day, Pastor On. I was reading in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14, and came across this particular verse and was wondering if you could explain it. I know that God has many names and attributes, but this one I did not know about. I hope that you're able to respond today. I'll be listening on the radio on my way home today. God bless you, Richard. I hope you're listening right now. I got the question. Uh, verse 14 says, um, for you, this is the Ten Commandments, obviously. Um, uh, or or a, 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 it's not the Ten Commandments, it's 6, it's chapter 20. But, but this verse is is sort of a continuation of the Ten Commandments. Verse 14 says, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous, capital J, is a jealous God. Well, Richard, the only way we know all the names of God is to have them revealed in the Scripture. So, in this particular case, it's intended to be a name. Names in the Jewish culture were always descriptive of character. And so when you see these names of God that keep coming and don't stop. We sing some of those names in some of the worship songs that are contemporary songs. Uh, it, it's We only know that it's the name of God because he declares it to us. So you just found out when you came across this passage. Uh, and see, this is one of the beauties, Richard, of reading your Bible, doing it consistently and systematically. Um, you learn something. God blessed you today by telling you something else about him. Let me tell you what he told you about him. By saying that his name is Jealous and that he's a jealous God. Remember the first J is capitalized at the name. Jealous God is simply descriptive. We wonder, why would God be jealous of us? He's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. Now, if we go worshiping other gods... And in the Old Testament, it's different than what we deal with in our culture. But money can be a god. Another person can be a god. A career can be a god. Hobbies and fun can be a god. Sex can be a god. All those things. Little g-gods. Well, God is jealous not of those things. But he's jealous because those things draw us away from him. And he's jealous for us. He's jealous for our good. And because he's jealous for our good, he wants only the best for those of us he loves. And he jealously, and I would add zealously, guards, at least without falling short of forcing us, he directs our steps. And he makes it difficult for us to go after another little g-god. So, Richard, what you've got here is simply a, a wonderful statement of God's heart toward you and toward me. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing that God is jealous, not of me, not of other things in my life, but he's jealous for me, and he keeps working really hard to keep those things away from me. Let's go to a caller from San Antonio, Roger on line one. Roger, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Thank you. I'll ask a question, and then I'll hang up and listen. I've, I've been reading in religious magazines and hearing on the radio, Christian radio, that evidently there's a conflict between people who say they're in the Reformed camp with people who are in the modern charismatic camp, and they seem to be going back and forth, trying to 
rationalize that they're each side saying that they're the right ones and this I don't understand the conflict or why there's conflict and I wish they would just get along can you respond to that yeah Roger I can thank you and I, I think Jesus shares your heart there uh, for 2,000 years Christians have been um, arguing about debating um, non-essential elements of our faith uh, in some small degree, Roger, the debates are healthy. We have to learn um, what somebody says spurs uh, one person to find out whether or not what they're saying is true, spurs another person to do some research on their own. Uh, that was the case with me when I first got saved and the first reform guy that I ran into and he tried really hard to convince me that God predestined everybody and we have no free will. Um, he talked about, you know, total depravity. We're dead. Dead people can't make choices, all that nonsense. And uh, um, what what those arguments did was force me into my Bible to find out what the answer is. Now, the problem with Reformed theology, of course, is that uh, it's a systematic theology that people filter the Word of God through. Instead of reading the Word and forming a systematic theology based on what it says, we take what the Word says and we filter it through this Reformed uh, uh, perspective and and it, it changes the way we view everything. It changes even the definition of words that everybody knows what the definition is. The debate has always been basically the same thing. God is sovereign. To the reform camp, that means that it's impossible to have free will. To the other group that you mentioned, the charismatic branch, um, they say, no, we have free will and we have to choose. The Reformed camp would argue that, no, we, we can't choose. That's a work and we're saved by grace through faith and we're not saved by works. And really, it's kind of silly. Now, we ought to be able to coexist together. We ought to be able to do so in love. But, Roger, if you're reading things online, if you're on a Christian forum somewhere or uh, or a blog and you read the comments, you understand that we can't. It's because we've got so much flesh. So here's the thing for you to do, Roger, and it's a very, very important thing. You see, doctrinally, these questions are important. Paul told young Timothy uh, to watch his life and doctrine closely. Both are important. Doctrine matters because it, it, it determines the way we live our lives. And so what, what you need to do uh, is dig into your Bible and find out what God says. And then believe it. Don't don't believe it based on somebody else's systematic theology or somebody else's filter. But instead, this is what it says. This is what it means. This is then what I'm going to believe. And don't engage in those arguments. Uh, I've learned to get along with Reformed people. They, they probably don't like me as much as I love them. But the point is that I'm not trying to convert them. I'm very direct about what what we believe here at Calvary Chapel. What we believe is what, what the Bible, I think, very clearly teaches. And even though I say very clearly teaches, I told you there's 2,000 years of arguing over it. So I don't try to convert anybody. That's not my job. Uh, I don't tell my church when we're going through these issues uh, as we go verse by verse through the Bible. I don't tell my church... Um, what this could mean or what some people say it means. I just tell them what it says and what it means. And I let them uh, do the digging on their own because these are doctrinal issues that are very important. We have to wrestle with them. And then when we come out the other side, we know why we believe what we believe. The problem with most of the extremes is that we believe what somebody's persuaded us to believe. Uh, we've listened to John MacArthur. We've listened to to uh, the late R.C. Sproul. We've listened to uh, somebody on the other spectrum, the Arminian spectrum. And, and we say, well, you know, they convinced me, so that's what I believe. That's not a way to be convinced. You need to be convinced by wrestling through the scriptures. Very quickly, Roger, for me, uh, this was so important. Um, I didn't want, I, I when I got saved, I had no religious background, none. I hate the word religion. I I I, I hate tradition. Um, I, I was I was a blank slate. And when I started reading the Bible, 
and all these questions came up, I really had to chew on them. I had to dig through them and come up with my own conclusions that I could justify, not based on what somebody else said, but based on what the Bible says. And slowly over time, a systematic theology began to emerge. But it was a biblical systematic theology, not um, a, a theology through which I viewed the Bible. And I know I'm repeating myself there, but that's really, really important. Uh, I don't know how mature or old you are in the Lord. Your heart is very clear and loving, and I am so grateful for that. Um, but doctrine matters. What people believe matters. So dig in and establish your own doctrine. And when somebody disagrees with you rather than argue with them or trying to convince them, instead, grant them grace in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty. And understand that on both sides of this argument are people that we're going to spend forever in heaven with. Wouldn't it be funny, Roger? If when we get to heaven, God says, okay, all you guys that were staunch Reformed guys and all you guys that were staunch Armenians or uh, I can't remember the other of the group, the charismatic group. He said, do you know what? In heaven, you're going to room together. You're going to be together forever. And, and I think there's going to be a whole lot of apologizing going on because we all thought we knew more than we really did know. So it's okay to have a good, firm grip on your doctrine. Make sure it's honest. Make sure the scholarship is intellectual. At the same time, and I think this is what troubles your heart, Roger, at the same time, it doesn't matter how much you know if there's no love behind it. And the people that are arguing aren't demonstrating love toward one another. So you keep loving them, you keep praying for them, but settle your own issue and remove yourself from the debate. Figure out what you believe, why you believe it, make sure that it's based on what the Bible teaches. And then don't get involved in other debates and you won't get your heart broken when you see Christians arguing. You know, there there are times when we have to take a stand against false teaching. The Bible could not be more clear about calling out false teaching and sometimes even calling out false teachers. There are hills to die on. Um, but at the same time, in those non-essentials, uh, truth is, we can get along, and the key to not get, or the key to get along, is not trying to persuade everybody that you know more than they do. So, Roger, I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. I wish everybody had Roger's heart. You could hear that. Uh, as a young believer, um, I it just when Christians disagreed, I just thought, my goodness, that's not what Jesus intended. Well, the divisions are necessary in some cases, but at the same time, we need really to hold on to what we know is true. If it's an essential, we stand firm. If not, we don't. Here is um, a question from Tina that I can say. i got three minutes, so I can do this one. Tina says, uh, Pastor Ron, how can I grow in my faith and walk quickly? <laughs> Tina, you can't. You can grow a little bit every day. Um, to, to grow in faith, you have to give God a chance to show off for you. You've got to learn that he's trustworthy. You've got to be somebody who digs really digs into the Bible. Um, that's where the person of Jesus Christ is revealed. That's where you're going to learn that you can really trust this God who's asking you to take steps of faith. And then as you follow him in obedience... You will grow in your faith and walk. Now, quickly depends on your definition of the term. I remember when I first got saved. Now, remember, I'm almost 40 years old when I got saved. And I remember very, very clearly the Lord was a lot more patient than I was. I've been saved a year, Lord. I should know more stuff than this. You know what? I'm still now 27 years in the Lord. What's today's date? Oh. 27th, okay. I think uh, my, mine was the 25th. I was getting confused. 25th, I think Paula's birthday in the Lord is today, the 27th of February, although hers was 13 years before me. Um, I'm still growing in my faith. There's still things I think I don't know that I don't know, and 
things out of trust God that I still freak out about sometimes. So Tina, don't worry about how quickly, just surrender to Jesus Christ. Dig into the Bible. When God speaks to your heart about something and he'll do it through his word, when he tells you to take this step of faith, you do it. And it will go as quickly as you allow it to go. If you are obedient, if you pursue God with your whole heart, if you take Paul's advice, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, you will grow by leaps and bounds and you do so really, really, really quickly. But when we don't trust the Lord, when we don't throw off that sin, well, then we take steps back. God's grace is wonderful. His patience is great. And we will grow. I can promise you that. Be patient with yourself, Tina. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585. We've got 30 minutes left in today's program. 340-9585. You're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the tuesday edition of the program 340-9585 for your live calls and questions here is a question from a confused nancy Nancy says, I'm confused between grace and obedience. If grace saves us, why do we have to be obedient instead of trusting in the finished work of Jesus? Well, Nancy, I don't think you're confused as much as you don't understand what the work of grace is really all about. You see, grace saves us, to be sure. But grace also enables us to live. This is very, very important. Grace enables us to live. We can live in a way that's pleasing to God. And grace is given every single day. That's why the picture of the manna in the Exodus wilderness is so important. They could only get enough for that day. If they tried to get more, it would rot. Well, that's a picture of the way we live. We get up every day and we rest in the grace of God. Well, the power of the Holy Spirit is triggered by obedience. And see, here's the thing about coming to Jesus. If we come to Jesus by grace, and we really meet him, we're really saved, then his purpose is to transform our hearts. And he wants us to be more like him every day, and less like the old us every day. And in the process, we find ourselves wanting to do the things that Jesus wants us to do. And too often, and your question doesn't say this, so I'm not accusing you of this, but too often we think, well, I'm saved by grace, that's unmerited favor, so now I can do anything I want and I'm still going to heaven. That's only, only a heart that hasn't met Jesus. Because anyone who's met Jesus understands that that can't be him. We can come to him any way we are. We don't have to do anything to be saved. But when we meet and believe me, when the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, then you're going to be changed. Your heart is going to be transformed. And then the things that we do, the obedience that he asks, the obedience is a privilege and an honor. It's not something that we have to fret over or worry about. So, Nancy, I hope that helps. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Let's go to Art calling in San Antonio. Art, thanks for calling. You're on the air. How you doing, Pastor Ron? I'm doing well, Art. That sounds good. Uh, um, I just call for some prayer, okay? I usually call for prayer, um, but I'm making like a big, 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 big step in my life, and I have to have total, total faith, Pastor Ron. Total, total, total faith. And and I know that's uh, that's what you're talking about, you know, the total faith in Jesus that, that that He will save us, you know, that 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 He He died on the cross and and the blessed hope, you know, and and uh, 
Um, that's basically what I call for 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 prayer and 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 every day it's a struggle, Pastor. I mean, every day I have to fight, you know, to 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 remind the devil, you know, that I am saved, that you know, that that I do belong to him, you know, and and, and I just want to. If your, your family audience to please uh, keep me in prayer. Uh, okay. uh, um, I'm going into a nursing home, and 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 I have faith. You know, hey, if, if I don't pull out of it, <clears throat> I'm gonna be seeing Jesus. You know, like my mom says. Yeah. But but yeah, that that's what I call for. For you okay. know, just give me well, a prayer, Pastor. I, I will be praying. Uh, you can listen to my response off uh, on the on the uh, on the radio, but uh, I will be praying. I promise you that. So um, I don't say that lightly. I've got a lot to pray for, but um, this is one that I'll keep in my heart. A couple of things. Um, let me encourage you. Uh, you're going into nursing home. I've had pretty extensive nursing home ministry uh, experience. Paul and I have. Uh, it is a, a place where um, the enemy is going to be there. Um, he's going to try to take advantage of every single opening that you give him. So don't talk to him. Don't try to convince him you're saved. Stand firm in the knowledge that you know you are. And the way you do that is just hold on. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what lies the enemy is shouting at you. Hold firm to the fact that You've been given the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. And if you'll do that, you don't need to talk to the devil to do that. When the lies come, you know what I do? When, when, when the enemy lies to me, and, and as most of you know, if you've been listening in length of time, uh, eight months ago I went through a really freak heart thing. It wasn't a heart attack or anything, but, but uh, a virus attacked my heart. And the enemy was screaming at me that you're going to die. If God was good, why would this happen to you? You work so hard to stay healthy, and this happens. And, and he was questioning the goodness of God. And, and what I do in times like that, it, it's, and it can be for lesser things too, Art. But what I do is simply say, Jesus, I know what you've done. I know who you are, and I know who I am in you. So you take care of the lies from the enemy. I'm just going to focus on you. Art, two things. Make sure you have your Bible when you go to the nursing home. Um, take some tapes. Uh, if you're into worship, take some, some, some worship CDs. I don't even know what you call them anymore. Um, but, but be focused on God's Word. And, and the enemy, he will surround you. He will try to find an opening. But, but if you can be so close to Jesus that he won't have any opportunity, I promise you God will cover you. We can't stop the devil from lying to us, but we can refuse to believe or even to entertain those lies based on what we know. So call as needed, and we will keep you in our prayers. Let me pray very quickly now. Jesus... Take art in your arms now. Uh, obviously, this is serious. He's going into a nursing home, and he said that he might not pull through. He, if that was the case, he would be seeing you. Lord, let him know that you're in control of that day. And it's a day you can't wait for, but maybe that day's not for a while. So fill art with your spirit. Give him a hunger for your word. Not just Bible verses, but your word. And then, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, prove to Art that he's more than a conqueror through him, through you, Jesus, who loves us. Amen. Art, um, um, instead of... Uh, one, one thing that I was just... As I was praying for you, the Lord, I think, spoke to my heart. Um, get real friendly with the book of Philippians. Even try to memorize it. Do the best you can. But get real friendly with the book of Philippians while you're in the nursing home. 340-9585 for your live calls. Here is a an anonymous question. Um, he or she says, is there something wrong with my faith if I struggle with depression? Um, maybe, but probably not. Uh, such a general question, but let me say this. 
Uh, I know some faith giants who struggle with depression. You want to hear about one famous one? Charles Spurgeon. He would get so depressed that he would just shut himself in sometime for weeks at a time. And he really struggled with depression, whether it was um, uh, uh, some chemical imbalance that they didn't know about at the time or not, but he just really struggled with depression. There was one time when his wife um, dressed in all black and pulled all of the, the drapes in the house and everything was dark. And he said, why are you doing this? And she said, well, because God died. And he said, what do you make? What do you mean God died? God didn't die. He goes, well, she said, I couldn't tell it by looking at you. You're acting like God died. And it was a real powerful rebuke. Um, depression is something that we have to fight with Jesus. It's one of the favorite and most powerful tools of the enemy. And when we're depressed and we don't feel like doing anything, we just feel like staying in bed. Um, you know, Paul always tells the ladies that she ministers to here uh, when they call her with depression. Okay, once you get up, once you take a shower, once you put some clothes on, when you've done that, call me back. Because we've got to get moving. The enemy wants to keep you uh, in a stationary position where you're easy to pound. And Jesus is always on the move. So no, in all likelihood, there's nothing wrong with your faith. Depression is something people struggle with. The answer to depression is Jesus. Be with him because we're told that in his presence is the fullness of joy. It doesn't mean you're not going to be depressed. It doesn't mean you're going to feel good. It just means that you will have joy and grace and resolve even when you're struggling with depression. But no, there's nothing wrong with your faith. Don't listen to people that tell you, well, if you really trusted Jesus, you wouldn't have those things. A lot of wonderful Christians over the centuries have struggled with depression. You know, I told you about Charles Spurgeon. Even the Apostle Paul, you read Second Corinthians, the things that he was going through and, and, and uh, the, 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 the things that Paul hated. He hated being alone. Uh, he, he didn't like being out of fellowship. He liked having people around him. At one point in Corinth, he was so depressed that he told Jesus, I'm going to leave. I'm ready to die. There's nobody believing anything. You know how they, the lies of the enemy. And Jesus appeared to him. That was the answer for depression for Paul. I have many people in the city of Paul. Hang in there. I always think that Paul probably left. Well, where are they? Why don't I see any? But you see, that's part of what we have to go through to become more and more like Jesus. So, anonymous depression isn't something to be ashamed of or embarrassed by. Uh, if it is a physical, chemical imbalance, um, go to a doctor. Uh, I'm not talking about antidepressants and meds. That's normally what they'll do. But first try Jesus. Hope that helps. Here is an anonymous question. Uh, my question is about being cremated when I die. Is that okay? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Uh, when this old body wears out, this tenth of a body that we carry around with us, and mine is running out anonymous um, quickly, um, when it goes, it doesn't matter what happens to it. We are so superstitious in this world that we live in, especially in the West, about death. We go through all these elaborate rituals. We pay tons and tons and tons of money to, to do funerals. And, and um, it, none of it means anything. You know, a service, a memorial service or funeral is not for the person who's died and been with Jesus. That's for those who are left behind. And as a pastor, that's always what I'm trying to focus on. Um, remembering the good times, um, thanking God for the, the time we had the person in our life. Uh, but there's no value in staying in the old body. There's no value. Paula and I, we've decided that we're going to take the, the absolute most inexpensive way um, to, to be buried. I told Paula one day, just bury me in the backyard, and she didn't want to go for that. Uh, she, she jokes about having me stuffed so she can roll me around with her. But uh, we've decided that we're going to do it as inexpensively as possible. I think we can do it for like 300 bucks. 
and and we're gonna that, that was a few years ago. It might be more more money now, but we just don't want to spend any money on this old tent. When it's done, I'm done with it. The moment my my the real me dies, this physical body gives out. The real me is going to be with Jesus in my glorified, resurrected body. And that means this old body has no value or import at all, except as a testimony to God's grace. So if that's what you feel like you want to do, go for it. Here is a question from Dan. Uh, How do I answer someone who says the Old Testament God and Jesus in the New Testament are different? And then he says it seems to be true. Well, Dan, if it seems to be true, it's only because you don't really know him yet. I'm not suggesting you're not saved, not at all. Don't misunderstand. But the Old Testament God and Jesus are exactly the same. Do you remember in the Olivet Discourse the woes that Jesus pronounced on the religious hypocrites, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, called them snakes, whitewashed tombs. That's a holy, just God. He was pronouncing judgment. All you have to do is read Revelation chapter 19. Here's a New Testament Jesus. He comes back and his robe is drenched in the blood of his enemies. On his robe and on his thigh, it's written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I assume it's written twice because the lower part of it on his thigh we won't be able to see because of the blood. That's what judgment is going to be. And every time God judged people, whether his own or enemies of God in the Old Testament, they got what was coming to them. They rebelled against God to a degree that judgment was the only answer. Well, the world that we live in is coming up on that time again. And the first thing that's going to happen in this world when we Christians are raptured out of it is that the judgment of God, a time of Jacob's trouble, worse than anything that's ever hit this earth by far, is going to be unleashed on this world. And it's all God's judgment. Trumpet judgments, the bold judgments. It'll be worse than we can possibly imagine. So what we've got to do is understand that's Jesus. Just as it was Jesus in the Old Testament, judging entire civilizations of people, though patient with them, the Amalekites as an example, he waited for 400 years. And they only persisted in the rebellion and got worse. His own people, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet and then sent the Babylonians the, the, the second time. The first time it was the Assyrians in the north. Judgment was just. Again, we need to get over this sort of mushy, emotional, well, God is a God of love. He is, but he's a God of justice and holiness. And when we understand that, then we understand this is exactly the same God. It's interesting to me, Dan, that the chapter in Genesis 19, 18 and 19, actually when Jesus comes to Abraham to tell him that he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and they have the negotiating session. There were two destroying angels, but it was Jesus who was there calling the shots. That same thing is going to happen in the Great Tribulation to the world that we live in. So what do we do? We focus on the fact that we need to tell people how they can escape it. Jesus said to his disciples, pray that you be counted worthy to escape these things. That ought to be our message to a lot of people. Judgment is coming. God wants to forgive you your sins. Pray that you can be counted worthy to escape this judgment. And if we'll understand that, if we'll do it, then we'll be so busy telling people about Jesus that We won't focus so much on the mean Old Testament God and the loving Lamb of God, Jesus, in the New Testament. They're really the same. So I hope that answers your question. Here's a question from Linda. 
Um, by the way, 340-9585, if you have a question you'd like to call. Linda says, if Lot really had sex with his daughters, how could he be called righteous in the New Testament? You know, Linda, uh, my, my question about Lot has not been how he could be called righteous. It just the fact that he was, there's nothing about Lot's life, nothing at all about Lot's life that would lead us to believe that he's righteous. But he was righteous because he believed, righteous by faith. Same way you are, Linda, and the same way I am. Now, Lot really did have sex with his daughters, it appears. And there's always a lot of cynicism about this. But it appears that when he was drunk and passed out, his daughters had a plan to take advantage of him. After the destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, they were afraid there would be no men left, that they wouldn't be able to have children. They wanted to have children. So the best they could come up with, these are the daughters, is to get their father drunk on consecutive nights. And on each of those nights, the girls would sleep with him. They they would not sleep with him, but go in and have sex with him. And people say, well, no, that's child abuse. No, it was the children who perpetrated this. And these weren't children, by the way. These are grown women. The point being is that um, he was not a willing participant in this. Uh, they got him drunk. They took advantage of him. Uh, as much as anything, he was a victim in it. Now, that doesn't mean he was not uh, uh, at fault. He shouldn't have gotten drunk. He, 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 he just should have lived his life in a more upright manner before the Lord so that his daughters and his family could have seen. Even his wife didn't follow him. Because she'd seen how compromised he was. She herself was compromised. So, yeah, he really did have sex. The world's been paying for that encounter ever since. And yet, Linda, what we should really marvel at here isn't how God could save Lot. We should marvel that his grace is so rich and so deep that he'll even save you and me. You see, I'm no better than Lot is. I've done different things, but I'm no better than he is. How are we doing on time? Four minutes, no time for calls. Here's a question from Ricky. Ricky, I like this question. Uh, Pastor Ron, what does it mean that the chapter and verse divisions are not inspired? Uh, Ricky, I say that all the time, and I remind our church, because we go through the the Bible. Uh, I'm going to be doing it... um, in this coming Sunday, coming up, I think it's, it's Communion Sunday, and I'm going to be doing it because chapter 15 starts the first 13 verses, really belong to the same conversation that, uh, that chapter 14 is all about. So what I will tell the church is it's a bad chapter division. Well, the chapter and verse divisions were done by men. They never appeared in the original autographs. Uh, they were never intended. In fact, they're very, very late to the party. And um, they, they were simply created as a means of making it easy to find locations of certain verses. Uh, it's it's a lot easier to say John 3.16 than it is to look through the, the manuscript and find out where it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. Now, um, the, the, the chapter divisions are a little easier to pinpoint the, the dating uh, and the the um, uh, genesis of them than than the verses are. The chapter divisions were created by Stephen Langston, then the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, about 1227 A.D. and about is is uh, there's a pretty good um, target of time there. Um, yeah, so he was the one responsible. Uh, the verses, uh, the verse breakdown, came later in the mid 16th century. And uh, those chapter and verse divisions have been followed pretty much from those times in every Bible ever published. Um, so I hope that answers your question. But there, there's a whole bunch of divisions that you can tell are not inspired because they just miss the point altogether. They belong to the last chapter instead of the, the new chapter that's going in. But again, their their purpose is simply to help us be able to find the location of Bible verses uh, in our Bibles. So, Stephen, thank, or Ricky, I'm sorry, thank you very, very much. Um, I've got two minutes, so I, let me find a two-minute question. Uh, I like this one, too. This is from Thomas. Uh, did Isaiah have to preach completely naked? Well, Thomas, you're talking about Isaiah chapter 20, 
Uh, it's very dramatic. It's amazing what the things the Old Testament prophets had to do. Ezekiel had to lay on his side for three years and then another side for three years. Now, that doesn't mean every day or all the time. Um, Isaiah did have to preach naked. Now, remember, it's a different culture, so we're not talking about nude, completely naked, the way we would understand it. Uh, what it would mean is he would take off his sackcloth. That was the, the clothing of the prophet. But he would have what we would call underwear. There'd be linen garments underneath. Uh, if they didn't have those, the sackcloth would have rubbed them all raw. So uh, it would have been naked in the sense that he was he was actually exposed. Um, and, and, and what God was doing was not only giving Isaiah the word to preach, but giving him a visual picture so that people would better be able to understand it. Uh, it was a prophecy of complete and utter humiliation, uh, a picture of how the captives would be treated. They would be once taken away to Babylon or to Assyria. Um, they would be they would be led through the streets and paraded around. Um, the idea is to completely humble and humiliate them. And Isaiah walking around in his underwear would have been a very vivid and active picture of that. So that's uh, what happened. And yes, he did have to preach in his underwear. And people would say, you're naked. We're in Second Samuel tomorrow. And, and uh, McCall, David's wife, says, you're praying naked. He was in his underwear. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the word. You've been listening to the word to stand on for life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630, The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.